before I start, I have an unusual request. Is that the... First, I'll let you hear me. Before I start, I have an unusual request. Is that uh, we were requested by the Camelback Church to have an announcement about a program that's coming up in December. But the uh, people that they're sending around to make the uh, announcement in churches are kind of traveling, and so they are doing beginning and end. We got selected for one of the ends. So I need you to help me to remember something. When I'm done, we're not quite done, okay? Which I know I'm not gonna remember unless I see, unless I see Lonnie's face. Lonnie Meloshenko is coming to make the announcement for it. I need to see his face, and he'll probably have to wave at me or something, but uh, so when I'm, done, <laughs> when I'm done at the end of the sermon, stay in place. Lonnie has an announcement for you to talk about a special musical program that's coming up in December. So how's, how's that? Something, something new every Sabbath that uh, I've never had to request before, but I know it's been a while, and uh, thank you uh, for, again, for holding me and Nellie and my family up in prayers, and it is so appreciated. <clears throat> uh, coming back, though, it's been a while since we've been in our study, so I just, uh, you know, we began this study to show the differences, subtle and not so subtle, between the worship of the two churches in the last days. Remember, in the end, it's not the church against the world. It's a church against a church. Two churches, two gods, two forms of worship, two forms of mission, two forms of power and authority and how to get that done. So we were looking at Revelation, between Revelation 2 and 13, and we know how well documented the fulfillment of the first beast came up in the Middle Ages. But we also learned it wasn't just, wasn't just Roman Catholic, was it? It was Protestant from, from that time of 538 to 1798. And we've spent the last uh, few studies looking at the second beast. The one that we know began around 1850 with a new national power to contribute to the church's nationalism. That the first beast had a particular uh, uh, brand, it had a particular uh, form of government, it had a particular form of the church at the time. It was still Christian nationalism, it just was in different nations and a different church. And today, it's just another coat of paint. It's just another identification. This one, again, is painted red, white, and blue. This nationalism is American. This beast uses what we would consider American values in order to get it done. He is lamb-like, but he's still a what? He's still a beast. So to make the transition from Revelation 13 to Revelation 14, because the beautiful thing is that Revelation 13 is very condemning of the worship of the church of the beast, which it should be. But Revelation 14 is then a brand new picture. If we identify with worshiping in the church of the lamb that was slain and not the church of the beast, Revelation 14 begins to show us what the church can be, what it can be like, even though we worship at the same time that all others would be worshiping this beast. So I have to begin a discussion towards 
the churches say separation, when they begin to separate from this nationalistic church. And it begins and ends with talking about power, talking about authority, and talking about the way the church uses it. In an Adventist uh, setting, in an Adventist uh, context, we have to begin to move towards the way that we use our power and start talking about things like pacifism and reflecting the power of the church of the Lamb rather than going against the power of the church of the Lamb. A few weeks ago, I, I, in August, I went through what I considered the church's view of the beach. And remember, the beach is where it happened. The beach is where the dragon called up these two beasts and created this false church. I, I, I looked at the church view of it, the church side of it, because remember, the beast always has two sides. It's the church side, it's the, church, it's the side that claims to be a believer in Christ or a gathering of body, and it's a national side. It's a, it's a secular power that comes together. And when it does, by the way, it horrifies the end time prophets. Daniel sees it and he's horrified, he's terrified. In fact, it knocks him on his back. He says, I fell as if I were dead. It's so horrifying to see the church and the national, political, military, civil power come together and to begin to operate and to begin to demand people's worship. So I looked at that and I, and I, and I, I wanted to examine, if you will, the church's part in this, in this beastly power. And of course, when that first beast was to reign, that 1260 years where, where Daniel actually says that it actually reigned, it wears out the saints of God, it does all of that, this happened. Remember, we, we looked at this. This happens in the middle of it from 500 to 1300 CE. The Crusades, the first crusade is launched uh, for the first three years, the 1096 to 1099. Thousands take up the cross, take up the cross and cry, God wills it as they take off on these crusades and to begin to persecute, rape, pillage, and murder anybody who doesn't confess themselves as a believing Christian. The crusades were designed to take back the Holy Land from those that they considered infidels. Eleven forty-seven to eleven forty-nine, the Second Crusade, Third, Fourth, twelve, twelve is known as the Children's Crusade. Thousands of children die from hunger and disease, or sold into slavery. The way that they felt they could eliminate the infidels is to enslave and to kill all their children. And then there's a 21-year crusade, Innocent the Third Crusade against the Albigenses. And we know the Albigenses, don't we? We know them from the Great Controversy. One of the two great, huge groups of what we would consider the remnant saints that are hiding in the wilderness. The church finds them. The dragon finds them. They number over a million all over Europe. And by the time the crusade is over, nearly all of them are massacred and they had to join the Waldenses over the Alps. I'll quote three historians for you to talk about the damage of the Crusades. 
estimates three million total dead for the Crusades. Matthew White, historian says, it's, he, he would say, he would put the number at three million in the period from, uh, from 1095 to 1291. Other estimates he writes, he says, uh, people killed in the Crusades begin at one million by Frederick Wortham, a, a, a 19th century historian, go as high as nine million, according to John Robertson. Five million, according to Elson. I, look at the, I took the low middle, White says. I took Garrison's e- instrument at about three million. As my estimate, the geometric means of the extremes is three million. He writes this in the book, the great big book of horrible things, the definitive chronicle of history's 100 worst atrocities. The structure of Revelation, of course, is not a chronological one. One commentator says this, it's a reasonable calculation that in the two centuries from the first crusade to the fall of Acre in 1291, there had perished in the attempts to recover and hold the Holy Land nine millions of human beings, at least half of them Christians. Misery and chronic pestilence had slain most. The mere carnage had been stupendous. So you see how the dragon's account of the church of the beast aligns. Revelation 13, 4, the, the people, the, the prophet looks at the church and says, who can what? Who can fight against it? Verse 12, it says, it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. This is the prophet looking at the second beast. This is the dragon's view of what happened and will happen and continue to happen. Because those who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. There are two definitions of authority between the church of the beast and the church of the lamb, two definitions of power, two definitions of worship, two motivations on how to get things done and how not to, two different kingdoms, two different citizenships in two different kingdoms, kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. Definitions of the sword, an actual sword, a a civil or military instrument, or the church of the lamb with the slain looks at the sword as defined by his what? By his word. Two definitions of the cross. The church of the beast made the cross an instrument of war. It weaponized the cross. The church of the lamb that was slain looks upon the cross as the very act of martyrdom that saved you and me. The true church, the lamb that was slain God willing to come himself and be a martyr to give his children an opportunity to live. Comes to show us in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, true love, the church of the Lamb, and the power of the cross. The dragon's church, a dragon and two beasts. He has a team, he has a church, he has a false trinity. This church's power, he turns war into the power of the sword, the power of the cross. The cross is given this, this new sword-like power. The church makes the cross a weapon. The Bible is given a sword-like power. The word gets weaponized. That's why I spent that Sabbath before I, I, I left talking about the word itself. 
looking at a literal verbal translation of the Bible that cannot be argued with, it's easy to weaponize it. It's easy to make it sound like something that it doesn't. And when that sound appeals to our carnal, selfish natures in the first place, who can fight against it? And in this false church, Jesus becomes weaponized himself. He turns into somebody that he simply is not. He turns into somebody that uses power he never used and never asked that his church use this power or any sort of design of it. I heard a a evangelical pastor a couple of years ago begin an intro to his sermon that he was preaching on Revelation 19 because he wanted everybody to see this new picture of Jesus that Revelation 19 shows. And it's a very different one than the one that was being praised in Revelation 4 about being slain. In Revelation 19, he has a war robe on and on his thighs is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he has a sword and he wipes out everybody. This pastor actually said, I'd like you to, to introduce you to what my friend calls the thug Jesus. This is my favorite picture of Jesus, he said. He said, our message today is that the world had one shot, one shot at killing Jesus. That's it. He's now going to take it out on everybody. Because that's the power that gets things done in this kingdom, doesn't it? But the nationalist Christian church uses a power that simply Jesus never used himself, never asked us to use, never gave us authority to use. So look at our uh, couple verses in our scripture reading again. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them what? Authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to cure every disease. Jesus sent the following instructions, go nowhere among where? Nowhere among the Gentiles entered no town of the Samaritans. Who were the disciples sent to first? Those who claimed to be believers, sent to the church of the day. And what was it that qualified you to be a member of this church? Remember, your heritage, whether or not you could prove that you were a son of Abraham. That's it. Jesus said, go nowhere else, but go to the lost sheep of who? And notice how he describes them. The what? The lost sheep of Israel. People that worship God according to their uh, heritage, people that worship God according to whether or not they could uh, uh, study there and keep the law properly, all of those things. A nation that began by worshiping God through an intercessor and worships through intercessors rather than come up the mountain and walk and talk with God himself. Jesus says they need to be shown that they're what? That they're lost. Not the world. Not the world of tax collectors and sinners. But the church. The church needs to be shown. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven is what? It's at hand, it's right here. When did the kingdom of heaven come to the kingdom of earth? 
Jesus' first words of his ministry comes out of the temptation in the wilderness. He looks at whoever's listening. I'm not sure somebody's listening because they wrote it down. They heard it. He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. The kingdom of heaven is who? It's him. And he came to bring it, to live it, to make it available to all of us and actually then even live in us. We become receptacles, if you will, sanctuaries, if you will, of the kingdom of heaven. You and me. The kingdom of heaven is to be proclaimed and it's to be proclaimed that it is him. His authority, his power, his commission. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, do what? Give without payment. See, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. Notice how he describes the church. The midst of what? Of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to the Gentiles. You have the king of the kingdom of heaven sending its very first citizens out. Now, I I, I say that with, with a caveat. I don't believe that the first believers in Christ are the first citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There have been citizens of the kingdom of heaven ever since the garden, right? Cain would be, uh, Abel would be considered a, a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Cain, I don't know, but I'm not his judge, am I? It just slipped out. But the very first ones that Jesus in the flesh commissions, the very first citizens of the kingdom of heaven goes to a kingdom who already claims to be citizens based on something that they were never ever supposed to base it on. And they will employ one force that cannot and will not be used. Jesus puts it this way in in chapter 11. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered what? Violence. And the violent what? Take it by force. Remember the first time that uh, anybody ever may have recognized that he was king? What did they try to do to him? It was the church in his hometown. It was Nazareth. What did they try to do to him? They tried to take him and make him what? And he actually had to perform something to where he actually disappeared from their presence and walked away because they were trying to make him king by what? By force. He won't accept it. This word is only used once in the New Testament. Right here, it's only used once and in its context. It's so clear it can't be mistaken. In Luke 16, it's put this way, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been what? Has been preached and everyone is forcing his way, where? Into it, forcing violence. From the lexicons themselves, it says, pertaining of this word, pertaining to the use of violent or strong force, violent or forcible, to experience a violent attack, to be attacked with violence, to suffer violent attacks. The kingdom of heaven suffers violent attacks. 
to employ violence in doing harm to someone or something, to use violence. Everyone uses violence in entering it, Luke 16, 16. And one commentator puts it this way, it's important to consult various commentaries before undertaking a translation. Probably the most widely held interpretation of these difficult expressions is based on the fact that many people did not hesitate to employ violence or military force in order to establish what they regarded as the rule of God on earth. And by the way, once the beast had its opportunity to do so, it did not hesitate, did it? And the second beast doesn't either. Once the era of the Church of Philadelphia ends in 1850, he gets down to business. He does not hesitate. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John came. How many? All prophets prophesied. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears, listen, from the days of John the Baptist, he said, from the days of John the Baptist until Jesus comes that day. When when John looks and proclaims him as the Lamb of God, John's uh, mission or uh, ministry up until that point had been three years, almost three and a half years. Jesus says, you may not know it, but he's also Elijah. Hearkening back to the days when the prophets certainly suffered violence. In 1 Kings 18, it says Jezebel was what? Was killing off the prophets of the Lord. Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them 50 to a cave, and provided them with bread and water. So John's prophetic and current message, according to Jesus, is mixed in violence. If you think about it, John's message isn't to the Gentiles. He set up in the wilderness of the place of Israel in Judea, in, in, in Judah. John only appealed to uh, Jewish believers, providing a baptism. And what did, he, what did he get? What did he get for his ministry? So Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the what? Of the righteous. And you say if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets? See, he's not speaking just of the days of actual uh, Elijah. He's talking about this Elijah. Because what happens to John? John's been arrested. He'll be martyred in about four chapters from here. By who? An Israeli king. Somebody who has both religious and what? And civil power. A few years ago, I did a, uh, we did a study on the, uh, the shadows of the covenant. You know, the, we looked at the new covenant and we looked at, at, at what would be considered uh, imitations of the, uh, of the covenant, only shadows of the covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. Anything that came before is a shadow or pointing to. And I think that one of the shadows of the covenant, of, of God's covenant with his people, there's never been any that did more damage than the monarchy. You remember the one living prophet at the time when Israel demands a king, the prophet had one message and what was it? Don't. 
you don't want a king. And he told them why. Because when it comes down to it, that king will employ violence because he has to. You make him a king on this planet, a king in a nation on this world, you have to learn how to employ violence. You have to use violence. But they wanted one because they kept getting attacked. They wanted one instead of the God who promised that he would take care of them. I think this is what he could be referring to when he says this. But what will I compare this generation? Remember who he's talking to, right? He's talking to a church who swears that if they'd been living back in the days of Elijah, they never would have persecuted the prophets. That's not us. That's not us. We're loyal to God. We worship God. We worship the true God. So Jesus says, what will I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her what? By her deeds, another way of saying, by their fruits you shall know them. Jesus says, my wisdom is vindicated by my deeds. It's our fruits of what we show. If you say that I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners, I have accomplished my mission. They claim you're not what you're supposed to be. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. See, Herod will martyr John. He'll remove his head as a party favor. He didn't want to disappoint the guests of his party. So he actually beheaded John the Baptist and brings the head in the party to show everybody, to show off to show what power he had. Jesus tells them, I came and I did what I accomplished and you don't like that I don't dance to your music and that I don't use your power. You don't like who I reach out to. You don't like who I believe tells you belongs in the kingdom. the deeds of power, the exhibition of power. The false church will use violence and won't hesitate. Because it seems that every false church that, or every manifestation of the false church that comes along in history and present time and future doesn't believe that it's the violence that's wrong, they believe it was the cause that was wrong. Those of us living at the time of the second beast look back at the first beast and say, well, no wonder it was wrong because the church's theology was all wrong. It was the wrong church and it was the wrong nation. It gets to the, to the second beast and the second beast uses the same violence, but they justify it because they think the theology is now right and that the nation is now right, that the cause is right. Jesus said, no. It's the violence that's the problem. 
no matter what our motive is, if it's the right government, if it's the right church, then violence is justified. Jesus says, no, not in my church, not in my kingdom. Do you remember what the, what the church of the day kept asking Jesus for to prove who he was? They kept asking for a what? They kept asking for a sign. Give us a sign. I remember the one time that they asked, he had just fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, and then they asked for a sign. So after he says this about the, the dance and the dirge, he says he begins to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done. How many of his deeds of power? Most of them. Because they did not what? Because they didn't repent. So he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, you'll be exalted to heaven? No. You'll be brought down to where? Yikes. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Guess what would be here today, he says. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. Take a look. At Best Theta, according to Mark 6, there were tons and tons, hundreds of people all sick on mats, and they were just running them to Jesus. They were just pulling them up on their own beds to him, even while he's walking along. He doesn't even have to touch them anymore. Mark 8, he, he heals the blind man. In Capernaum, look, well, look at the signs that were performed in Capernaum. The centurion servant that we looked at a few weeks ago. The, my favorite sign is that he gets his tax money out of a what? Out of a fish. That's my favorite sign right there. Catches a fish and his tax is in the mouth of the fish. I like that one, I really do. Because that says something about the secular power of the day and about the spiritual power of the church of the lamb that was slain. Mark 1, casts out a demon in the synagogue, heals Peter's mother-in-law, whole city gathers at the door, and he heals all of them, many, and casts out demons. John 4, the royal official son, Mark 5 and Luke 8, Jairus' daughter, yet they still say we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not what? You did not mourn. All these signs and they won't repent. All of these signs. What do they need to repent of? One thing that hit me about all the healings here is that you have to remember the theology of the day was, was that sickness and illness and demon possession meant that it was your fault. Somebody sinned in order for this to come to your life. Master, who sinned that this man was born blind? Sickness was looked upon a retribution from God because of your sin. And Jesus is doing what? He's healing them all. They don't like who he's healing. 
See, as long as they remain healthy, they can walk around and look at other people and feel better about themselves spiritually. That's what self-righteousness can do for us. If I believe God is gonna punish you for a sickness, then when you do get sick, I get to feel good. Because at least I wasn't as big a sinner as you, man. And by the way, if God makes you sick and doesn't care about you, I don't have to either. They don't see uh, this as a sign of power. They actually see it as a sign of the devil. Not just that he's healing on Sabbath. (laughs) Didn't even get to that part. It's that he's healing people at all. What did they want to see as the real signs? They wanted something done about Rome. They wanted something done about oppression. They wanted something done so they didn't have to pay taxes anymore. But he comes and he messes with their power and their authority and how they're able to lord it over tax collectors and sinners. And they're eventually gonna crucify him for it. And again, just as a reminder, these are the people that believed that they were, a, uh, that they were people of the book, that they were biblical. They had the word, they knew the word, they memorized the word, they applied the word, they kept the word but they only have it on paper. God shows up as the word become flesh, completely incarnated, and the people who only have the word on the tablet and the paper look at the word become flesh and they call him the devil. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. He doesn't perform the signs he wanted. He doesn't use the power and authority that they believe God has. It's not the signs that they wanted. Repent. I hate seeing that word in the Bible because we think we know what it means. (laughs) And it does mean this, by the way. It, it, It includes this. It does mean this. But repentance is the combination of two Greek words, meta and noia, which literally means when you put them together to change your mind. When we see repentance, it's usually in an evangelical definition or a pastor's definition who stands up in the front of the church and wants you to quit sinning. Repent from what? Repent from your sins. Be sorry for your sins. That's what we have uh, labeled repentance as, when actually what it means is to change your mind. Jesus is telling the church of the day, you need to change your mind about me. Change your mind about the people that I'm, that I'm dealing with. Change your mind about what authority you think you have. Change your mind about what force you think you can use. Change your mind about righteousness and atonement and salvation. They need to completely what? They need to change their mind. It may include being sorry for your sins, but that isn't its exclusive definition. You gotta change your mind, especially when it comes to violence, when it comes to force. What's one of the cities they said that, would re, uh, that if he had performed any of those signs in those cities, that they would be rejoicing, that they would be in the kingdom of heaven? He said Tyre and Sidon, didn't he? 
in, 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 the, in, the, in the days of, of being surrounded, if you will, by pagans and pagan religion, Tyre and Sidon that are at the top of the pyramid. Jezebel was Sidonian. In fact, she was, just wasn't a Syrophoenician woman. She just wasn't a Canaanite woman. The wife of Ahab, Ahab, the king of Israel, she was originally from Phoenicia. She's the daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidon. Chief priest of the gods Baal and the goddess Astarte. Two uh, pagan fertility gods that don't, don't Google what their practices are, especially on Sabbath afternoon. Really. It just isn't for consumption. She personally supported the 450 prophets of Baal in Israel at the time of Ahab. She hated Elijah and anyone who held to the worship of God. And by the way, she continues her influence for generations in Israel in the rule of her sons. And the very last time that one of Jezebel's uh, uh, children are, are mentioned is 2 Kings 8, something like five generations later when they finally get rid of her daughter, Athaliah. Like I said, you can't even imagine the worship of Baal and the fertility rites that it required. Child sacrifice. And when they were done sacrificing these, these little babies, they would put the bodies in the mortar of the temples that they would build. You can't even imagine it. See, in the citizens of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, looked at that, looked at them and said, hey, we may not be perfect worshipers of God, but at least we're not animals like these pagans out there. There's gotta be something going for us. But when Jesus had an opportunity to teach that lesson, it says he returned from the region of where? Of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. He went. Jesus left that place, went to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Where is he now? He's in the middle of that country. He's in the middle of that pagan country that practices just what we practiced. Just then, a what? A Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman, a woman just like who? Just like Jezebel came from that region, started shouting, have mercy on me, Lord. Son of David, my daughter is tormented by a demon. Notice the title she uses. She calls him son of what? Son of David. The lost sheep of Israel can't look him in the eye and call him that because by the time in the first century, son of David was the title of only one person. It was what? It was the Messiah. This supposed pagan worshiper of Baal and Astarte looks at the Messiah and actually says that he is the Messiah. Son of David, have what? Have mercy on me. So like I said, this is for the woman and her daughter, yes. But who is it more for? Who's listening? Who's watching? Who's observing? his disciples, the very first citizens of the kingdom of heaven who need to what? They need to repent. Because he's reaching out 
to a pagan worshiper of Baal and Astarte, and none of them, absolutely none of them feel he should be doing this. But he didn't answer at all, so he plays into it. He didn't answer at all, and his disciples came and urged him to what? Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. I looked at that word, that, that, that word for shout, and it's a very strange world, word. It's, it's a scream, actually. It's a screech. It's a horrible, unnatural, unhuman sound that she's using. And they're not comfortable with it. Send her away. We know that you can't heal this pagan. I really believe the disciples believe that Jesus believes that. You cannot heal this pagan. Look who she is. Look where she's from. We know that you can't do this, so at least, please, shut her up. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, he continues the conversation with her. But she came and kneeled before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it's not fair to take the children's food and give it to what? And give it to the dogs. The disciples must have thought, hey, he's listening to us. We believe she's an animal. He does too, apparently. And then how did she answer him? But Lord, even the dogs eat what? Eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. The humility is amazing, isn't it? He called her a name and she doesn't retort trying to call him another name or anything like that. She's got only one thing on her mind, that she needs mercy. And I really believe that at that moment, Jesus knows that the object lesson has to move from the disciples to full attention to this woman. And when he did, I believe a big tear rolled down his cheek and said, woman, take what you want. What you ask is given to you. Great is your what? Great is your faith. And let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was what? Her daughter was healed instantly. See, Israel thought that it's the repentance and being sorry for your sins that Tyre and Sidon needed. And the Tyre and Sidon and Sodom could no way ever be forgiven for their sins. But here they are themselves in their sin, bringing themselves to Jesus and asking him to be healed by what? By faith. Israel feels they need no repentance and they won't come to him in faith. In fact, they want other forces to be used. They want it to be taken by violence. They won't approach Jesus in the only one way that we're allowed to approach Jesus. They will not approach their God by the only way that we're allowed to approach God, and that is by faith. And if you won't approach him by faith, in whatever way you're approaching him, in my self-righteousness, in my belief in a cause, in my selfishness. It's an act of violence, by the way. You can't take from somebody that which he's willing to give because he will not give it to anybody by force. You can't force him. I often wondered how the old um, Adventist theology of final generation theology and having to become sinlessly perfect became so popular. And, I, and I, it hit me one day. 
Um, when I was, when, when uh, somebody said it, it hit me one day. A real good friend of mine said, <laughs> we wanna believe that we could become sinlessly perfect because when we do, then God has to save us, right? We take away his choice. If I become perfect, I have to be saved. It's like not trusting God after the flood and building my own tower. If you don't approach Jesus by faith, you can't approach him at all. Because when he's done, he says at the time, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the what? You hid these from my disciples, (laughs) these guys, these rabbinic students. You hid it from your church. You hid it from everybody who claimed to be wise. And you revealed them to what? Infants, not children. Babies, he says. Babies, infants, that's the word. Yes, Father, for such was your what? Was your grace, was your will. The wise, the intelligent, those who feel no need will be tempted to use violence as the fourth of the kingdom because they all claim that we have one common enemy and that one common enemy is not sin, it's sinners. Tyronians, Phoenicians, Sidonians, Sodomites. My violence is that in my self-righteousness, I'd rather stand on top of those in darkness to try to show God how bright I am. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not one of these pagans down here. Rather than shining a light to them, rather than loving them, rather than approaching them as fellow sinners and with humility and authenticity, just being with them and shining a light, rather than do that, rather than love them and forgive them and live a life of grace at no cost because that what was done for me, I'd rather use violence because it gets things done. See, it certainly is the approach of today's Christian nationalists who believe that as long as it's the right cause, violence then can be justified, it can be sanctified. Violence is an easy way out. That's why we see pictures of signs like Jesus says next to a gallows meant to hang somebody for doing their job. Spiritual violence as to who belongs in the kingdom and who doesn't. Spiritual violence because love just, it's complicated. It takes too long. And it won't cater to my personal grudge. Grace will not cater to who I believe belongs and doesn't. And I may be a sinner, but at least I'm not as big a sinner as he is. It was one of those emails that was forwarded to me. (laughs) And I'll grant that it probably really didn't happen. Okay? You know, one of those situations where something happened and somebody wants to make a point, so it probably didn't happen. But I do know that something like it happens all the time, all across our ways, when you start talking about freedom of religion and the separation of church and state. 
especially when it comes to public schools. But apparently, there was a prayer that was taking place before the football games each night, and there were complaints from parents, so the school board then began to prohibit the Christian prayer that was taking place on the field before the game. And the very first night, very first Friday night that they were playing, that the prayer was prohibited, somebody, a hero, a crusader, if you will, takes the PA system and begins to elucidate all the things that you're allowed to do in public school except pray. And it was a friend of mine that forwarded me that email. And I decided since he was a friend of mine, I would do something that I rarely ever would do. So I answered him. I said, do you think this was a good thing? Do you think that that person really was a crusader? Do you think that person was standing up for religious liberty? Prayer at a high school football game after it's getting officially prohibited? Do you think because that they said that uh, everything is wrong in this world because there are things like prayer and Bible study and things uh, allowed at public school, even if it's only voluntary. So I said this to him, I said, why does every North American evangelical, I might as well say, why does every Christian nationalist think it's a victory when any non-Christian is forced to participate or even forced to listen to a prayer that was instituted and funded with the tax dollars of people of every walk or faith or even no faith? The reason why prayer should be prohibited at a public school is because that public school is paid for tax dollars by everybody and required by law that their children attend at least until what? Seventh grade. That's why we've always believed you should separate church and state. See, but, but if, you, if you think that it's the right cause, if you think that it's the right message, then we will go over that. We will step past it. We will take a shortcut. And we'll just make people listen. After all, it's the right words. It's the right theology, right? So the announcement that, that they were making that should have been made, I wrote down. I said, To all the Sikhs and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists here today who don't believe in in our teaching of God and his son Jesus Christ, we know that it was your tax dollars that paid for these stands in which we sit, the field on which your kids and our kids are playing, the uniforms they wear, and even the PA equipment I'm using to announce this on. But right now, we're going to use it to worship our God. And since you're already here and your kids are here, you're just going to have to listen. We don't have time for anyone representing your faith to lead you in prayer. So I guess you can just stick your fingers in your ears until we're done. We're glad you're here that your fathers believed like our fathers did, that we're free to worship and not worship in this country. You're free too, I guess, just not tonight, just for a few moments. We know it'll be okay because you'll hear the words that you really need to hear. 
And since you don't have the patience to love, we don't have the patience to love you as Jesus loved us, then tonight we'll just make you listen. Then I asked him, I said, what if this prayer in this fictional football game at this fictional high school, what if the prayer had been the Salah, the five-time prayer that Muslims say every day? What if it had been the Our Father or the Hail Mary? We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. Church looks at Jesus and said, we know what you taught. We know how you feel. We just don't have time for it. We can even make prayer violent. We make witnessing violent. We turn it into a violent proselytization. And we're just not willing to do what Jesus called us to do. The difference between authority, the difference between violence and love and grace. It's almost simple if it wasn't so complicated. I know it's not easy to listen to as I pointed out before this entire series, but thank you for holding on with me. Thank you for giving me a bit of your time. And to remember that as complicated as this gets, as bad as it gets, which we thought up until yesterday that it got bad. Can you imagine being any worse than it has been the last three years? But it is going to is what they keep telling us. As it gets worse, I praise God again that I get to do it with you. We can do this. We can figure this out. And we can do it without violence, can't we?